This is the Florida Spectacular Podcast with your hosts, Kathy Silustri and Rick Kilby. Keep up with Kathy at GreatFloridaRoadTrip.com and on Twitter and Instagram at Kathy Silustri. Find Rick on Twitter at OldFLA and visit his website, RickKilby.com. Now, discover a Florida you never knew existed. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to this week's episode of Florida Spectacular, the best podcast about the best things about Florida with the best co-hosts. I am Kathy Celestri, joined by the illustrious Rick Kilby. How the hell are you, Rick? I am the best. <laughs> I just said that. You are absolutely the best. Um, I um, am so happy you found a guest for us this week because I am usually this is the time of year where I start to go on my rant about Thanksgiving and what a bullshit holiday it is. And my staff at the newspaper had to hear the whole thing yesterday. They'll probably have to hear it again Friday. Uh, But one of the better things I think that has come out of Thanksgiving is that we do now have holidays and celebrations that celebrate the people who were actually here before our ancestors showed up for whatever wacky reasons we had. And there's a lot of celebrations throughout the state and throughout the country this month. And I think we've, we've keyed on a guest here who can talk more about some of the culture. Well, he's giving a talk on Sunday at the Orange County Regional History Center in downtown Orlando about ledger art. And if you don't know it, Ledger art is basically my understanding. He tell us more is art that was created by Native Americans in, in ledgers and sketchbooks in the 19th century, and particularly there's a group of 20 some that were imprisoned in Fort Marion, what we now call Castillo de San Marcos, the original name, and they created these wonderful pieces of art. And he's connecting them to contemporary comic book art, which to me is such an intriguing idea. And he is at UCF, but Jeremy, what, Jeremy, tell us a little bit about yourself and your journey. I am a postdoctoral scholar in the Department of Writing and Rhetoric at the University of Central Florida. I am not a Florida native. Um, I'm actually a Midwestern born and raised uh, guy. Uh, came to Florida in 2018 to move near some family and got plugged in at UCF, started doing some work here, and just found relationships with some great people. I did my doctoral work at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, and I focused on Indigenous studies. In particular, I do sort of Indigenous visual rhetoric and visual work. So one of the first things that I really wanted to do when I got to Florida was to connect with local Indigenous communities, Um, and that largely took place um, via a grant that I got my colleagues and I were able to get in my department from the Sam and the Virginia Pats Foundation to work with the Seminole Tribe of Florida. Um, And in particular, we built a relationship with the Atafiki Museum on the Big Cypress Reservation. Um, So that's kind of how I got here, how I got started. Um, And I can talk a little bit more about the the other relationships that led to the actual ledger art stuff. A lot of it was uh, related to starting to figure out this history of native communities that weren't originally from Florida, but have this really particular history to Florida. Um, And Rick, as you mentioned, a lot of that happens at Fort Marion or the Castillo de San Marcos. And the way that it was actually used as a prison for for prisoners of war after the Plains Indians Wars in the 1870s. 
1875, it's actually 72 Plains Indians prisoners were brought from Oklahoma all the way across up through um, Indianapolis and then down to St. Augustine um, and were kept there for three years until 1878. Um, and during that time, Richard Henry Pratt, the general who was in charge of them, was able to get a bunch of ledger books and ledger, uh, some of it was used, some of it was not, but uh, sketchbooks and all of this other stuff and um, some colored pencils. And uh, we have this huge collection of ledger art that exists in a bunch of different places across the United States now, a bunch of different libraries and museums. Um, and I've been thinking, trying to think pretty critically about what that art did then and does for us now. What I read is that uh, traditionally they would have uh, decorated buffalo hides and, the, you know, the style of artwork would have done been used with kind of probably natural materials that they used to paint on the buffalo hides. What changed was the medium, right? Yeah, you're totally right. And it's um, and it really depends on the tribe. So buffalo hides were a pretty common method of uh, of this sort of artwork for Plains Indians tribes. But for instance, in the in the Midwest, especially in the upper Midwest, it was a lot of birch bark scrolls and other methods of, of creation like that. For a lot of the Upper Plains tribes, they used um, buffalo hides and other animal hides to create things like winter counts to tell the story of like sort of the things that happened in the last year for their community. But yeah, it, a lot of what changed uh, was the material. Um, and with the material, that necessarily meant that some of the visual practices changed a little bit, but there is definitely sort of a through line that you can totally see in the different visual, the, the, the art, the pieces of art themselves. So why was the art spread out? What, was it sold? I mean, was it a, a commercial enterprise and people, the highest bidder ended up with them or how did it get to where it was? Yeah, exactly, actually. Yeah, um, that was one of the things. So there were two main things that the prisoners did and they actually, uh, that they took into the community in St. Augustine and they sold. The first one was creating the ledger art. And so they would, um, there are some of the books that still exist as a whole. So they were sold as a sketchbook or they weren't sold. Not all of them were sold. A lot of them were also kept. But many of the ones that have been taken apart were actually sold to people throughout St. Augustine and to visitors to St. Augustine. The other thing that the prisoners did was they actually polished sea beans and they sold those as well. And so there's, uh, there's, they're definitely tied up with this sort of like, Pratt was, Richard Henry Pratt, the general, was trying to get them to sort of like turn this into a commercial enterprise in some ways, right? Um, as much as it was also cultural, there was definitely some commercial sort of push that that, that was put on the, the materials. I read that that this, I think it was the general who was in charge of this, was trying to take the Indian out of them, but, you know, encourage them to be more like regular U.S. citizens, and that, that was part of his practice. But then at the end of their period of incarceration, some of them decided to stay in the East, and that's, I think, where I got the number of 20, some of them. Some of them moved into different homes, and, and some well, – well, just tell us what happened. You know better than I do. Yeah, I mean, you're you're spot on. It's, it really – it depends on the prison the, – the person that we're talking about here. The right. individual prisoners made different decisions. So – Fort Marion and the project at Fort Marion is actually not Richard Henry Pratt's claim to fame. His claim to fame is actually the foundation of the Carlisle Indian Industrial School in Carlisle, Pennsylvania, which becomes one of the blueprints for non-Catholic run boarding schools throughout the United States 
that begin prop popping up all over the place. There were already a bunch, especially out west in California with the with the Catholic missions, but this was one of the first ones that was uh, that was state run. Yeah, his Pratt's famous phrase is "kill the Indian, save a man," and so yeah, all of these were about sort of getting Native people to become more quote unquote like U.S. citizens, whatever that actually means. And yeah, a lot of them at the end of at eight, in 1878, when the prisoners were finally released, some of them went back to their communities. Some of them actually made lives on the East Coast, and then some actually went with Pratt to Carlisle and started actually continuing their sort of uh, Western education with him in Carlisle. So this is actually something that people don't really know about the history of Florida, that Florida has this like really specific tie to the practice of boarding school education, which ends up, and we see this a lot more contemporarily, ends up becoming a really, or ends up being a really violent practice. Um, and we especially see this as a, in a central conversation in Southern Canada right now with the sort of like remains that they're finding of children's bodies. Kamloops is the really is the really famous one that was really big in the news um, in so, British Columbia. Jeremy, let me let me stop you for a lot of our listeners who maybe some people hear boarding school and they think more facts of life than what we're talking about. The Indian, the American Indian boarding schools were not a place that the Indian children went by choice. They were not a place of kindness. They were not a place of celebrating anything about these children's lives. It was an effort wholly geared to, for lack of a better word, however inaccurate, Americanize these children. Can you talk a little bit about that just briefly for people who aren't familiar with the boarding school? Kathy, I think you said it exactly right. These are about assimilating, right? Assimilating kids, uh, indigenous kids into becoming more American. Again, whatever we think that means. And obviously, depending on the time that we're talking about, that had different meanings. The process almost always involved relocating away from your community. Some of the most famous people who, famous uh, Native people who went to, say, Carlisle School were from tribes very, very, very far away from Carlisle. Point of that was to separate you from ancestors. Ancestors are the ones who carry the traditional, who carry traditional knowledge um, and would tell stories of your people. If you can't hear stories of your people, then you can't pass down stories of your people. So that's the first thing. The second thing is almost always kids' braids were cut as soon as they got to school. Hair was cut, especially if they were um, if they were if they were boys. Um, the boys' the braids were cut. They were made to have shorter hair, in sort of the vein of uh, what's thought of as like a good hair, quote unquote, good haircut for American men. And then the other thing, and this is especially a practice that happened in the Catholic mission schools out west, but it also happened in all the schools in the East as well, and in the, the, the middle of the United States, the big thing was that you were not allowed to speak your language. Um, whatever language that may be, you were not allowed to speak your language. It was about learning English. You have to learn English in order to appropriately assimilate into American culture. Um, and so, yeah, all of these processes were done in really violent ways, right? Um, so I know that the, the stories that I've heard were of beatings and rods uh, on hands uh, and on legs, especially uh, if you're if you are caught speaking your language and not speaking English, for instance, a very violent history that we sometimes don't think of in that in that sort of way. 
Yeah, I, we had an exhibit and it was created by the Heard Museum. It, it's a traveling exhibit, I believe, with NEH, but it was at the James Museum in St. Pete, which overall the James collection is not one that really celebrates the Indian side of the story. But um, in this gallery, they have retaining exhibits and they had the Heard exhibit away from home. And away from home, it was a fairly succinct exhibit about what it was like to be a child in an Indian American Indian boarding school. And the thing that, that sticks with me, you talk about what you're talking about when you talk about this. And I know this is not about ledger art. When you tell somebody, you can't talk about what life was like for your grandfather. You can't talk, you can't tell the stories your mother, you can't eat the food you're used to eating. Horrifying part of it, almost more so the physical abuse or calculated thing that still feels very cold and ruthless. The, the things they those people were denied took away their ability to have an identity, basically. I think it's really important. One of the things that I think we sometimes don't talk about, but that's, I think, a big concern in Indigenous studies, uh, with Indigenous studies scholars who study boarding schools, and, and, and in particular, the sort of histories and stories uh, of, the, of the students um, from boarding schools, is the ways that you're divorced from place, right? Um, so you're literally taken away from your homelands. And this is really kind of problematic because it's super traumatic, right? Because um, not only are you not hearing the stories uh, from your ancestors and from your from the elders in your community, but those stories also help you to understand why you're in the place you are, how you relate to the people and the things around you. That is not a possibility anymore. So now not only are you not, you're losing your identity and especially your cultural identity, what's being stripped away is everything that helped you to understand how you relate to things in the world around you. So now you're very like being as a human is being rewritten in a lot of ways. Some of these kids didn't go to boarding schools until they were 10, 12, 14. And you know a lot of stuff about your community and about the, about where you live and why you live there and how you relate to the the lands and the waters around you to have that all stripped away completely it completely like demolishes everything that you that you would have known about yourself and i can't even imagine right like being this being 14 when i'm trying to figure out i don't know the world and obviously i am non-native so i didn't grow up uh, on a reservation but right like just the the sort of like figuring out how to exist as a as a coming into myself a person while all of this is being stripped away as well. It was a very thorough process that was really, really problematic in, I mean, in all the ways that we could possibly sort of name. Were any of the Native American people who are associated with Florida, like the Seminole and the um, Miccosukee, were they sent to those boarding schools? I mean, because I know that a lot, large number of Seminoles ended up in Oklahoma. Did they end up in any, in any of those places? Yeah, a lot of a lot of Seminole folks did go to boarding schools. Not not as many, say, as uh, some other tribes. And a lot of that has to do with the relationship between the Seminole uh, tribe of Florida and the United States government, which is a very different relationship than, say, the, even the Seminole nation in Oklahoma has a really different relationship with the government, with the U.S. government than the tribe of Florida does, um, right? The Seminole tribe of Florida, is, their big thing is that they are the only unconquered tribe. And in many ways, right, like they, they used the Florida Everglades as a way to keep from sort of being driven out of their homelands in some really particular ways. But there are people, so for instance, like I've done some work on um, Betty Mae Jumper, who was 
who was the first woman elected as the uh, council person for the Seminole Tribe of Florida. Um, and she did, in fact, go to boarding school in, I believe it was in Oklahoma, but maybe don't quote me on that because it's been a while since I've looked at that. But I know she did go to boarding school outside of outside of, of Florida. So there are definite, there is a definite history there. So people like Betty Mae Jumper, though, they're able to kind of survive that brainwashing that they got there and come back and then, you know, reunite with their original tribe and still make a difference? Yeah, totally. And I mean, in a lot of ways, what this does is, I mean, and it it didn't start with Betty Mae Jumper, but she was a really big proponent of this for the Seminole tribe. And it happens in tribes all over the place. You actually start to see a sort of like, not sort of like um, native communities can just like pretend like colonization is not happening. Settler ideals will still be a part of native communities no matter what. Um, And so in some ways, what what some people would argue, and I'm not sure I buy this argument necessarily, but what some people would argue is that the Seminole turn toward Christianity, which is a pretty big thing now on the on the reservations, uh, is actually a bystanding sort of thing from interactions with settlers, right? Um, that like Christianity isn't a thing for Seminole people, but now there's a large subset of Seminole people who are Christian um, and who subscribe to a Christian belief set and Betty Mae Jumper was really central in starting to think about how someone could be a part of the Seminole community, maintain Seminole beliefs, and also maintain Christian beliefs. Um, and that the way that it's more than just like, you know, being one or the other, or it's, it's about how the two can, can co-mingle and interact together. I think that what's really important with this is to make sure that we don't like kind of rail on this sort of like oh, Christianity is all colonialist, right? Which a lot of that is true. It has colonialist sort of histories, but there's something about communities taking these beliefs and then having their own effect on them and changing them and finding ways to incorporate them into their communities as well, which I think is what we see a lot happen with the Seminole Tribe of Florida. So it sounds like, because I know that as, you know, the Catholicism in general, that was, you know, the Spanish brought over to Central and South America kind of merged with the belief of those indigenous people and that you, what you see, you know, like the adoration of the uh, the Virgin Mary and all that kind of stuff and the iconography that kind of mash up the two cultures exists in Florida in in a small degree to in the Seminole um, community. I mean, do they still maintain some of the like the the traditions like the corn dance and things as well as some of the Christian traditions or is it one or the other? So let me let me let me let me step in here because I've been down there and I've talked to Tippo about this. Uh, You know, you can't assume you, you have to be very careful here because, yes, there are Christian churches on tribal land. You, you can go to the reservation and you will see Christian churches, but you can't, you know, people are complex and we have to be very careful here, you know, we no longer refer to the LGBTQ community or the Black community. And the reason for that is it implies the sameness, right? If you if you paint everybody with the same brush, yes, um, it, it, it removes their humanity. So you cannot do because one has seminal ancestry, they are Christian or they are not because everybody in that tribe individual which is one of the reasons that the tribe usually will not have a spokesperson is because they are all different and they really want to, they, they are not the same simply because of what's in their blood. 
So you know, obviously, Jeremy has a more academic answer, and I don't want to step on that. But this is something in my talks with with TIPO, which is the Tribal Historic Preservation Office. I just want to make sure the podcast doesn't go too far away from that. That that I want to I want to try and maintain the integrity of what's been communicated to me when I've been doing research. Yeah, I think that's a really important point, Kathy. That's that's what I was trying to. That's what I was trying to get up, get across when I was talking about the sort of people like Betty Mae Jumper bringing and kind of championing Christianity. It was one way to understand the relationship between Christianity and or a belief system, whatever that belief system may be, and seminal tradition. Just because there are some Christian people in, I mean, it would be like saying that all people in Florida believe one thing when we obviously don't, right? Um, the Seminole Tribe is a very kind of diverse group of people, um, just like any collection of people, right? There's a large history of sort of like bringing some of some different traditions together. Um, but yeah, there's definitely, it definitely is not all people believe those things. But I mean, to go back to your question, Rick, I think that that actually gives us that answer, which is like, yeah, uh, like corn dances, still happen, right? Like um, powwows still happen, right? Um, and sometimes they have Christian kind of practices sprinkled throughout, but sometimes they don't. It really depends on where it's being held, who's running it, right? Like all of those things. And that's true, not of just the Seminole tribe, but of my experiences at powwows and with tribal communities, you know, across the United States. So is it difficult being a non-Native person and working with the tribe? Is there any resistance? Are they um, forthcoming? You know, I for myself, you know, I kind of have a Western mindset, obviously. That's the tradition that I grew up in. And that the paradigm is different for them to remove myself from that, you know, is a is a leap and you know, would take an adjustment. Is it difficult for to do that? Yes, but I think it should be. <laughs> um, right. Uh <laughs> I'm gonna say, um, you know, this is something that I've I've struggled with my own kind of ways. My biggest thing to note is that uh, a couple of things. First, there are going to be moments when I just don't know something and I'm not going to know something and I'm never, it's not my place to know something and fine. I have to be, I have to be cool with that. Like it's just, it just is what it is, right? I'm not native. And so no matter what the community is, there are going to be moments when I just, it's not my place to know a thing, right? I've had communities who have been really open with me about stuff uh, in our relationships uh, and they'll share stories with me and they'll share traditions and practices with me. And then we'll get to certain practices where they'll just say, right? Like not, this is a community thing. Like I can't talk about that. Um, I think the problem lies in the sort of like the fact that researchers haven't always taken that tack, right? Like, especially, I mean, you know, I don't want to throw one particular uh, discipline under the bus, but I'm going to kind of a little bit here, right? Like anthropological specifically approaches to indigenous communities have created a history that is problematic. And it's not just anthropology. That's not what I'm trying to say. But these are the ones that get talked about the most. And a lot of it is this assumption that researchers have because we're quote unquote unbiased, which is also not true. Um, but because that's the assumption that we're objective observers of culture then we should have access to whatever we need to do our projects. And that's just not how the world works, right? And especially with some communities who have been harmed by research in some really, really, really material ways, 
they're way, way, way more protective of their of their of their information and of their community members. My relationship with the Seminole Tribe of Florida is really only through the museum because the Seminole Tribe of Florida has lots of protections in place for their elders and other community members. Um, and so it's public facing things like the museum and some folks at TIPO who I also have worked with. That's where my relationship with them sort of like starts and ends. Um, and I'm welcome to come to certain things, but there are, there are places where my research just does not go. And it may be different if I were uh, an indigenous researcher, but even then, they're really protective whether or not you're seminal, right? For really particular and very, very fair reasons. So all that requires of me then, and this is where the difficulty comes in, and it's not, it, it's just something I deal with, is my research has to morph around that. I have to know what sorts of things I can research and what sorts of things I can't. What can I write about or what can I write about? So this is why my stuff always focuses on sort of public facing uh, visuals and art and rhetorical kind of moves in communication um, and not so much anything that I feel like I shouldn't really be putting my hands on. Yeah, the speaker they had last week, uh, um, she focused primarily on the image kind of of, of the Seminoles and um, showed how it, it evolved over time, you know, from the, the first depictions of, for instance, Osceola and how that kind of the image of him with the rifle, you know, is repeated again and again and again. It was very interesting to see how it came forward and is used by contemporary artists in their work as well. And it's the same iconography that existed from day one. And I, I would think maybe that's the benefit you have is you have kind of a palette of you know say comics and you know contemporary american pop culture so you can compare and can contrast and see how you know it influences the native american culture today and specifically what i'm really interested in is is the ways that native artists are working in these different genres and how we can sort of bleed uh, we can see this sort of media start to bleed together, right? So that's what a lot of my talk on Sunday is going to be about, is sort of the ways that there are some visual practices that are pretty common in things like ledger art. There are particular colors used, there are line styles that are really particular, and it depicts really, like, normally has a pretty normal sort of set of things that it would depict. Um, and we see that sort of stuff start to bleed over into comics, where these past traditions that exist in indigenous communities start to inform this current practice of art in indigenous communities, but that also has, like comics, have a non-indigenous history too. Um, and so it's really fun to, to try to start to piece apart like how all of this is starting to mesh together to create this sort of new sort of pop culture artifact. Yeah, I've been watching that special or that show that they have on PBS about the Native American cultures. And I one that I really I thought was interesting was they took Native American rhythms and put it in dance music. Mm. And it was incredible. And, you know, I loved it. And they would have Native American dancers at these. I don't know what you call them. They look like raves to me, but I'm an old guy and I've never been to a rave. But it was really interesting. And it was, you know, they they gave new life to you know, uh, tradition that's been you know hundreds, if not thousands, of years old, and and put a twist on it that made it accessible to a whole lot more people. So yeah. is that what's going on with the comics? In some ways, I think that's definitely what's happening. In terms of the music, I would say that if any listeners are interested in this, I go check out a tribe called Red, which is a say that a, say that again. 
a tribe called Red. Okay. Um, it, it's a group of uh, musicians who they take um, traditional drum music, uh, drum based music, and they combine it with more contemporary sort of like techno EDM sort of stuff. It's very cool. Uh, it's very, very fun. With comics, yeah, I think that this is definitely what's happening. There are ways in which comics are comics are really operating in really a lot of different ways for indigenous communities right now. But one of the ways is, yeah, the sort of like reinvigoration of other forms of art, um, like ledger art. Now, I, I want to be clear real quick that um, there are also practicing contemporary ledger artists, too. So there is ledger art that's still currently being created. Now it looks, it's doing some really different things um, because it's also trying to marry, it, it also, a lot of it brings in pop culture influence and pop culture references. For instance, like I have worked with Gordon Yellowman. He is a chief and contemporary practicing ledger artist of the Cheyenne and Arapaho tribe. And he came and talked to my students once and uh, he showed us some art, some ledger art that he's created. And we can to you can totally see the sort of like through line in the in the sort of visual style, the tradition. But it's also very contemporary. It's doing some different things um, that's very fun. And I see this happening in comics too. The other thing that comics I think are doing is they're drawing attention to stories that sometimes don't get talked about in really pop culture spaces. There are a lot of stories that really focus on uh, missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls and that sort of epidemic that happens in tribal communities across the United States. There's a lot of, um, I'm actually, I'm looking up at my shelf of comics uh, right above my head just to try to think about all of these. There are stories about boarding schools and about students uh, in boarding schools. Um, and then there's also ways that comics are being really used really creatively to think about things like language revitalization. The biggest example of this one is an artist named Cole Pauls, who's actually a Canadian, he's Southern Chichone, um, but he creates this comic that's about robots in space, but all of it is done with footnotes and all of the comic, it uses Southern Chichone language throughout and then it's all footnoted in translation. Wow, so that's exciting. There are, yeah, so there are really cool ways in which comics are being used to actually revitalize languages for Native communities too. So now are these published by the same, you know, like, it's been decades since I bought a comic book. I was big into them. I have to say, you know, the Marvel Universe and DC and all that kind of stuff. I mean, are these published by those those same uh, publishers or are they kind of smaller, published independently? Like if you wanted to find one of these comic books, where would you? A lot of them are being published elsewhere. The biggest one is Highwater Press um, is the publisher it's out of a press in Winnipeg, Canada, and they're publishing the most comics right now. Just in terms of like broad numbers, they've got they've easily got the biggest collection. There are also some some uh, university presses in the United States that are publishing comics now by Native hmm. artists. So Michigan State has a couple. University Press of New Mexico has at least one or two that I can think of off the top of my head. Outside of that, I will say, in the past couple of years, Marvel especially um, has taken an interest in starting to publish more work by Native creators. Part of this happened, I want to say it was three years ago, um, when in November, three years ago, they published 
a collection called Marvel's Indigenous Voices. And it is a thicker comic book that, I mean, it's like a floppy. It's like a normal monthly comic, but it's more pages. And it's an anthology of a bunch of short stories by a bunch of Native Native writers and, and artists that take up Native superheroes that exist in the Marvel universe and then start to tell stories um, by Native artists, which allowed for a really interesting and different approach to Native uh, superheroes because there's a long history of Native superheroes not exactly being the most well thought through sort of representations of Native people. And so Marvel is is making efforts and in, in inroads towards this too, which I think is really, really fun and interesting. The only other thing I would say is there's the boom of, of like indigenous author comics also circles around a comic book store actually in, in Albuquerque, New Mexico um, called Red Planet Books and Comics. And Red Planet is also the storefront of a, a publisher, Native Realities Press. And Lee Francis the Fourth is the is who runs that. He has been an absolute champion of Native artists uh, and really kind of putting tons of comics out there and putting these into the forefront. I've already been sort of like giving his information out to tons of people and uh, given his information to some of the folks on the Seminole <laughs> Reservation at the museum and stuff because there's some really cool art that's already being created there that I think that could lead to some really cool partnerships. Are there seminal characters in comic books today? Not that I can find so far. Not that exist as far as I know. That doesn't mean that they're not there, but I have yeah. not come across them. That's one of the things that like I've seen. Um, so the museum, one of the cool things the museum does a lot, um, the Atatiki Museum is, so the Big Cypress Reservation has the Afachki School on the reservation. And so they do, I think I, I'm, I'm under the impression that it's a yearly exhibit, although I could be wrong about that. But at the very least, when I was there last, they had an exhibit uh, that was all student art from the Afachki School um, of various grade levels. And, and so much of that is really like there was a lot of cool comics-esque stuff that students were doing in some of those art pieces, too. So I was like, ah, I want to talk to these kids. I want to I want to see I want to read more of their stuff because this is so cool. Um, and so I'm hoping that eventually some of the some of those uh, folks on the reservation start to produce some cool stuff because I'd love to read it. I was way into comics when I was young and I loved it. You know, it's amazing to me that we still talk about them all these years later because we have like video games that are, you know, like comics come to life, basically, you know, that you can manipulate and control. And, you know, if you want to punch the Hulk, you can punch the Hulk. You just you use your little remote. Is there... Um, positive representation of native people in video games too, because I'm not a gamer. I'm not, it's not my part of my universe, but is that something that's happened as a result of all this? I think that some games are trying. That's about as far as I'll take that. Um, I think there are some moments where I think there are, there are some creators who are really trying. And, and I want to say that I'm thinking particularly of like triple a big games, big studios, but there are a pretty sizable subset of creators that are creating smaller indie games um, that are indigenous and are creating indigenous focused games, um, which is really cool. The person that I know the most is her name is Elizabeth Laponce. Um, she's uh, Anishinaabe and she's created a couple of games and actually been the subject of some, uh, some scrutiny because she created a game, for instance, called um, I think it's called Thunderbird Strike. It was around the time that the, um, the Dakota Access Pipeline uprisings were happening. 
in this game, you play as Thunderbird. You play Thunderbird and you fly. It's sort of like a side-scroller 2D game. You fly and you use your thunder. You fly up into the sky, charge your thunder, uh, your lightning power, fly to the ground, and destroy construction equipment. Um, <laughs> and uh, that's the game, right? Like, and there were people in Michigan. So she, at the time, Dr. Laponte was teaching at Michigan State University, and she was she was like the subject of a, a ton of just like really vitriolic rhetoric coming from. Uh, largely from conservative community members that really didn't like the the sort of representation of uh, of oil uh, companies um, and of the sort of the, the quote unquote violent practices, right? Which is really interesting. I don't know. I mean, I find that I find that really interesting. But that game is really really cool. It's beautiful to look at. It's stylized really really well. And she's done some really cool other stuff. Uh, I think she was involved in a game called When Rivers Were Trails, which is a version, like a native-focused version of Oregon Trail. Um, But it focuses on rivers as the primary way of of kind of getting from point A to point B, a traveling for indigenous communities. Um, That's really fun. But in the kind of, in the AAA kind of big game kind of circuit, the big ones that I think people will point to are Red Dead Redemption and Red Dead Redemption 2, which are two games that are sort of Western games you play as a cowboy in both of them, and it's sort of like out in the American West. And there are Native characters in those games, and some of them are interesting, and some of them are not good at all. So it's really sort of like a, I think there are inroads being made. I don't think that we're quite there yet. It's it's interesting that you mentioned Michigan State a couple of times because there is a professor here at Rollins, Julian Chambliss, who went up to Michigan State, who was really involved with Afrofuturism. And that some of what you this kind of reminds me of Afro, Afrofuturism. And I kept thinking, well, if there's is Marvel going to bring an indigenous character, you know, to the Marvel Cinematic Universe, is there kind of a comparison between Afrofuturism and kind of Native American futurism? Is that a thing? Yes, definitely. We often refer to it as indigenous futurism. Um, but yeah, it totally is uh-huh. follows on the heels in a lot of ways of um, of Afrofuturism. Beth Laponce has written a lot about indigenous futurism, but there are also a, a ton of other people. Grace Dillon has done a book, a collection called Walking, it's called Walking the Clouds. Um, and it is a collection of short stories or snippets of novels that exist that uh, she kind of defines as Afrofuture, or I mean, indigenous futurist um, sort of pieces of writing. So yeah, I think there's totally, I mean, it totally follows in in, the, in that similar vein. I'm also friends with Julian. Um, I'm on the Comics Study Society board with him, so I know Julian very well. It's, it sounded like you guys were kind of similar in your approach, and it definitely, you know, what you talk about reminds me of what he used to talk about. So how should we – I don't want to say how should we. I mean, what's, how do indigenous people look at Thanksgiving? I mean, I like to think about it as – I don't get caught up in all the pilgrim stuff. I, you know, I like to think about, you know, family and gratitude, which I think is a, something I try and practice throughout my life every day. Um, but how should we, how do you rectify all this with at Thanksgiving? It's a really good question. Um, <laughs> I'm not going to have a great answer, which is the first thing I'll say is, and this goes back to Kathy's point uh, about sort of just the idea of what, Native people think about Thanksgiving will, de- will change depending on which person you're talking to. At its very base, I think there are a couple of things that we have to understand about Thanksgiving 
the big thing is that the story that we were often told is not true. <laughs> um, Can we just say bullshit? So, Can we just go yeah, with bullshit? Thank you. Bullshit. It's exactly it. Thank you, Kathy. Yeah. The story that we were told is bullshit. That's not how all of this sort of the relationships uh, during the sort of founding of the United States or the America at the sort of pioneer stage. That's not how that happened. Um, and I'll leave that to someone who studies that era a lot more than I do to talk about the sort of complexities of um, the sort of economic and uh, sociopolitical concerns of the time. But they're way more complex, obviously, than we're taught in like third grade. All of this is uh, goes back to the notion that like the founding of America meant the colonization of indigenous people. And so that's a really violent process. So when you tie a holiday to that sort of foundational story, then that holiday is going to get vitriol once we start actually questioning that story. I think that we just need to spend some time in that space, right? Like, and note that, like, I don't think there's anything wrong with the process of of being thankful and of spending time with family. And I don't think any, I, I, very few people that I know would say anything against that. I think the concern is when we use it as a time to continue to um, share this very boiled down version of, let's say, whitewashed version of the relationships between Native communities and settlers. For me personally, my big thing is, of course, I celebrate Thanksgiving, I get together with my family, but my big thing is I'm sharing with my friends, with my kids, with people that I know, right? Like, and many people who I surround myself with already know this, but we talk about this sort of like, let's have some food and hang out, but also talk about how this is a sort of colonial holiday. That's the thing, and it should be a part of the history, and we shouldn't be scared to talk about it. And that's the biggest thing, because there's nothing we can do to change it, right? We can't go back and undo it. We can't suddenly become non-colonial, like we can't get rid of colonization. But there are paths forward to begin to decolonize and to begin to work against the things and I think the biggest thing is just like, more than anything, we have to start to be okay with that history. Not that we're okay with it, but that we're okay with talking about it, that we're okay with learning from it, that we're okay with the fact that like, it existed, it was terrible. How are we going to do something different? I could not agree with you more because, Jeremy, so first of all, Thanksgiving is a Catholic holiday right? They, they would celebrate a massive Thanksgiving. So Thanksgiving in and of itself is not a uniquely American holiday. But once you tie that holiday into what that meant for the people who were essentially trying to help the colonists, you change the game a little bit. You change it a lot. Part of Thanksgiving is the answer any more than I think getting all the Southern Confederate general statues torn down is the answer because that doesn't erase the history of what happened. What you're getting at is that you have to really contextualize the holiday. You have to be willing to talk about, yes, we're on stolen land. Yes, we we are founded on things that we've been told are their half-truths or their lies. And then then you look forward from there. I don't think you remove all these things and just pretend they didn't happen because that's a disservice too. Because then why why are all these Indian nations struggling? If we've removed the holiday and we've silenced all the reasons that all these people continue to struggle, then we haven't done any more of a service if we just invited everybody over for a big plate of dry ass turkey. I, I have some feelings. 
Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. I mean, uh, and just in closing, I would just say we're like one of the kind of practices, I think it's a, it should not be an endpoint, but it's a good place to start is to take some time to figure out who existed, exists and existed on the land that you live on and that you exist on, right? The Seminole tribe is not the only tribe, uh, tribal community who has ever lived in Florida. There are ways to go about figuring out, right, like what tribal communities did live, what tribal communities do live, where you are right now. Um, and then start to figure out, well, what, what sorts of things can I do? Because like part of the problem is just recognizing that they're Native people isn't enough, right? Um, it's starting to figure out sort of, okay, what do we do now, right? How do I work with tribal communities in whatever ways they need me, right? Like, and part of that is being okay with being told how you can interact with the tribe, right? What work they need you to do. If they need you to do any at all, right? Being okay if they say no. Um, and just realizing that like in having that relationship with the tribal community, it's not about you. It's about, right? Like making space for that tribe to decide how they are going to interact and interface with the world. And if if you can, how you can help with that. But the biggest thing is just start figuring out who, by figuring out what tribal communities live on, live on and lived on the land that you were on. Um, the big, the good place to do that is uh, uh, there's a website, nativeland.ca is a great map that uh, is really thoughtful. It's not fully complete, but it's really thoughtful in how it depicts the communities that live on and lived on uh all over the world. I wanted, I wanted to build on that. There are things you can do. Uh, I am a member of the Atatiki. We have a link in the show notes. You can you can join and support the museum, which gathers the culture and heritage of the people. You can um, go down and and visit. You can you can go visit. I mean, I think pretty much every federally recognized tribe has some they have a tipo a tribal historic preservation office i don't know that every single one has a museum but i know in florida um absolutely there there's the seminole tribe of florida and this is going to sound really strange but i will tell you that the biggest thing you can do is if you if you're so inclined go to a casino i mean that sounds so odd (laughs) but the casinos, especially with the Seminole tribe of Florida, are actually showing these tribes a path out of poverty. And it's it's an incredible thing. So if you enjoy that, go for it. But go to a tribal casino. Don't don't go on a cruise ship. Don't go to Vegas. Just go find a tribal casino. Go to Harrah's in North Carolina and and let them have some of your money. Because I'll tell you what, the Seminole tribe, where that money goes, they've built a new school. If you live on tribal land, you don't have to pay any type of utility bill. The tribe takes care of it for you. Um, and it goes directly to people who are members of the Seminole Tribe of Florida. Like You don't get any more, any less, depending on some perceived amount of station. So I know that sounds like a very capitalist solution, but that's you know one of the best ways. And go to things, like go to the exhibits, go to... Go to the talk at the History Center. I know that this podcast is going to be listened to well after your talk is done, Jeremy, and I'm sad that I'm going to miss it. But those are things you can do. You can go to exhibits when you see them and you can ask questions. You can always, 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 always keep in mind 
um, one of my very favorite proverbs, I believe it's African, and it says, until lions have their own historians, tales of the hunt will always glorify the hunter. And that's that's how you have to kind of look at a lot of exhibits that deal with history or the American Indian, I think. Jeremy, thank you for your time. Thanks for joining us. I look forward to your talk on Sunday at the History Center at 2 p.m. It's free. Jeremy, thanks so much for being here. Um, Everyone, thanks for listening. We'll continue this cheerful Thanksgiving theme throughout the month, fear not, and we'll see you next week on the Florida Spectacular.